0: Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, fine-tuning the universe for life. But first up, here's the news. Stingray cyborgs for a better tomorrow. A team of researchers, led by Sun Jin Park and applied physicist Professor Kevin Kit parker at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University, have grown a thumbnail-sized robot stingray. It's powered by heart muscles grown from rat stem cells onto a silicone body around a gold skeleton. The cyborg ray swims by undulating its body in waves, just like stingrays and skates and is genetically engineered to be controlled by light. For lovers of truly amazing uses of English, the abstract of their paper in the journal Science puts it: Inspired by the relatively simple morphological blueprint provided by batoid fish such as stingrays and skates, we created a biohybrid system that enables an artificial animal, a tissue-engineered ray, to swim and phototactically follow a light cue. By patterning dissociated rat cardiomyocytes on an elastomeric body enclosing a microfabricated gold skeleton, we replicated fish morphology at embedded image scale and captured basic fin deflection patterns of battoid fish. Optogenetics allows for phototactic guidance, steering and turning maneuvers, leading to coordinated undulatory swimming. The speed and direction of the ray was controlled by modulating light frequency and by independently eliciting right and left fins, allowing the biohybrid machine to maneuver through an obstacle course. The robot ray has a layer of 200,000 muscle cells that can contract downwards, and a gold skeleton that stores elastic energy during the downstroke so that when the muscle relaxes, it rebounds like a spring. The ray is activated by immersing it in a bath of Tyrode's physiological salt solution, which is a little like blood plasma, containing glucose as an energy reservoir. Pulsing light of the right frequency starts the ray swimming, and pulsing the light at different speeds can steer it around in the salty sweet water. It won't swim in plain water. On the other hand, it would work perfectly in blood. Medical nanobots, anyone? The cyborg ray is 16mm long and weighs just 10 grams. If they could shrink it down, maybe a more advanced robot swimmer could deliver a payload of medication in your bloodstream or get into place to do some repairs. After six weeks of swimming, 80% of the rat heart muscle cells were still alive and undulating. The team successfully manoeuvred the swimming robot around an obstacle course. They concluded in their paper, This work paves the way for the development of autonomous and adaptive artificial creatures able to process multiple sensory inputs and produce complex behaviours in distributed systems and may represent a path towards soft robotic embodied cognition. Kevin Kitt Parker was inspired by watching a stingray during a visit to an aquarium with his daughter. He realised that the movement of the stingray was very similar to the movement of heart muscles. The team carefully studied the way skates and stingrays move to understand what their muscles were doing. Marine animals are very good at pumping and moving fluids. By reverse-engineering natural muscle pumps, Parker hopes to better understand how the human heart works. The genetically-engineered miniature cyborg-rat-stingray-robot is a training exercise that will lead on to other biohybrid robots and ultimately reveal how best to build an artificial human heart that could be transplanted to people in need. Previous artificial hearts have been mechanical pumps. An artificial heart made from living muscle cells could behave more like a natural heart, able to respond instantly to changing conditions. The robot stingray is a logical step upwards from Parker's previous creation, the robot jellyfish. Parker engineered the cyborg jellyfish by growing heart cells on a silicone cup. When the cells were zapped with electricity, they contracted the cup and propelled the jellyfish forward. Steering the stingray robot by light is a big step forward. The paper was titled Phototactic Guidance of a Tissue Engineered Soft Robotic Ray and was published in the journal Science. In a national public radio interview, Parker said he sat down with his postdoctoral student and said, Sun Jin, we're going to take a rat apart. We're going to rebuild it as a stingray. And then we're going to use a light to guide it. And the look on his face was both sorrow and horror. Harvard is a jolly place. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, great mysteries of the universe in two parts. This week, astronomer Luke Barnes will lay out his end of the argument, followed next week by philosopher Mark Colvin, who will respond... Luke Barnes is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sydney. He got his PhD in astronomy from Cambridge. After working in Sweden, he's now researching galaxy formation and the fine-tuning of the universe for life. And a warning, my third eye rig broke. So the following interview has a little bit of distortion. I'm looking for a better solution. I met Luke Barnes after his talk and began by asking him what does it mean to talk about the fine-tuning of the universe for life? So,
2: fine-tuning—we've we've borrowed a word from physics jargon here, but it's a sort of—it's a metaphor that brings to mind radio dial. That you, if you want to listen to a particular station, you dial in that particular point, and if you're off by a little bit, you'll just get static. You won't get—you won't get the thing you want to to listen to. So, in physics, we have to make sort of assumptions about the way that the universe works. And so we have models and they have numbers in them. And if we have to make a really precise, fine-tuned, specific assumption, then we start to get suspicious of that model. So we start to think, you know, maybe if there was a a more natural way of explaining this, then that that would be better. So fine-tuning for life is just that idea taken from physics, applied to one particular physical phenomenon, which we happen to be, which is a life form. And we've found that some of the assumptions we make in fundamental physics about the basic properties of matter, how much electrons weigh, things like that, make a very large, very significant difference to whether our universe would support life forms like us.
0: So it's all to do with the physical constants that we plug into the equations and whether they can be changed a little bit?
2: It's not so much whether they could be different in our universe, but what are the other ways that the physical universe could have been? So... As we look through the, the, the different ways that the laws of nature sort of present the universe to us, there are different possibilities that are sort of presented in those laws. There are constants that we don't know why they have that value. There's the way the universe started off. We don't know why that is. And so in, in a quest for answers, one thing we can do is just to change those assumptions and see if it gives us any clue as to why the universe is the way it is.
0: And what happens when you change the assumptions?
2: Well, the funny thing is we we you sort of don't know until you do it. it It might have been the case that we just had different kinds of universes to ours that you know there could be different elements in the periodic table or different sort of molecules that form. But so far as we know, for the for looking in detail at these other possible universes, most of them are really sort of dead. they they they're far too simple to do anything like, Make the molecules that life needs. So, with some fairly small changes to those numbers, you can erase the periodic table. You can make sure that the fundamental particles of the universe don't stick to each other to make anything at all. You can erase all the structure in the universe. You can have a universe which just expands and nothing ever collapses to form a galaxy or a star or a planet or a person on that planet. So a lot of these other universes are very, very simple. Our universe is I mean, it keeps physicists busy because it's complicated. We have to try and work out how it's working. But these other universes, these other possible universes are really simple. We sort of, it's quite easy to work out what would happen. And most of the time, it's something very simple and very dead.
0: Does there seem to be any of the other types of universes you've modelled that potentially could have some interesting chemistry or, or physics that maybe could get complex?
2: Yeah, so there are ways to make other universes which don't seem too different from ours. So there's other ways to make cosmic structure. You could make more cosmic structure in certain ways, for example. Some of that, it just makes the universe more complicated. There's, there's ways to make more black holes, for example. And Whether that's a, a good idea is a, is a bit of an unknown. Certainly if you had a universe completely full of black holes, that's a bad idea. A particularly interesting example is in our universe, there's a difference between the energy you need to start a chemical reaction or the energy you would get out of a chemical reaction and the energy you would need or get out of a nuclear reaction. There's a very clear difference. You, the difference in the sort of the factor in, in energy is about 100,000. So you light all the fires you like, you're not going to turn lead into gold, unfortunately. We can consider other possible universes in which that gap is narrowed. So you could light a fire and cause a nuclear reaction. That wouldn't be as bad in this universe because it wouldn't be as much energy coming out. It would just be another reaction, but it would make things a lot more complicated than our universe. So if you you have a lung full of oxygen and if it hits the sides too hard, you could start a reaction that turns it into something else entirely. So that would be a a much more complicated universe. Whether that could support life or whether it would be too complicated is another question entirely. Those sorts of issues are are interesting, but most of these other universes aren't like that. They're they're very simple places.
0: And so you've actually done some modelling to figure out what these different universes might be like and how complex they get.
2: Yes, so we have massive computer codes that can simulate how galaxies form, and for the most part those have been used to try and work out how galaxies form in our universe. So there are these huge simulation projects using thousands of computers for months at a time. And so what I've been doing is taking that those computer codes, which sort of represent the best of our knowledge about how galaxies form, and then doing the sort of fine-tuning investigation, let's change the numbers underneath them, uh, the, the ways that our universe isn't, but could have been, and seeing what happened. So you can then see universes that make a little bit more structure, or you can see universes that make none whatsoever. You can sort of totally wipe out and make a totally boring simulation that does very little, unlike our universe, which is
0: doing loads of interesting things. Did that lead you on to the probabilities of this? So is it is it really unlikely that we're here, or is this just the way it is, or what does it mean?
2: Well, that's a lot of big questions. <laughs> so these sort of investigations that I'm doing using the computer codes have been done, but more approximately, with sort of pen and paper methods. So those suggest that against the range of possible values for say something like the cosmological constant this number this thing whatever it is that's making the expansion of the universe accelerate relative to the range of values it could have there's a very small range that will allow any structure in the universe my simulations are looking in a lot more detail about exactly what values of the constant will and will not allow structure to form and how much structure will be allowed to form and all of that which we need to sort of improve our understanding of of the probabilities involved and particularly if you think that you know we got this number by chance whether whether we can explain things in that way but it, on very general grounds if you're just looking at the raw first guess at a probability of if, if you know it's a big if if the universe just sort of picked this number by chance would it hit on a number that that allowed structure to form in the universe the answer is almost certainly not the probability for that's extremely small and
0: you mentioned Boltzmann Brains.
2: Yeah, Boltzmann Brains sounds like a sort of crazy idea, half out of you know, the Matrix movies and half out of some strange philosophical thought experiment. But in, in physics, it's, it's really a consequence of the idea that you have to test all of the consequences of your model. If you have an idea about how the universe works, you can't just pick out the nice bits. You have to take all the consequences, because if any of them are ridiculous, then you've got a problem. And one of the things we found is that there are, there are certain theories that we thought were nice and lovely and doing great things, and they turned out to have these strange complications in them. So if you think that the answer to how do we get a life-permitting universe is, well, maybe there's lots of different other universes out there, something called the multiverse. You have to worry about the fact as to whether a typical observer in that universe, which is what you're trying to predict after all, whether a typical observer will be like us, whether they'll see a universe with lots of order and structure in it with galaxies and stars and planets and, and, and biological evolution and molecules, all of that lovely stuff, because it is physically possible. It's unlikely, but it is possible to just have an observer sort of fluctuate out of randomness, out of chaos and if your idea for this multiverse if you're just sort of making things at random if it turns out to make more of those what we call Boltzmann brains then your idea is in a bit of trouble so it's not it's not the sort of philosophical brain in a vat what how do we really know we're not Boltzmann brains you know just having random thoughts out in the chaos somewhere it's it's a theory making a prediction problem. If your theory, if your idea about how the universe works, turns out to be infested with Boltzmann brains, then it's got a problem. One of the things that got raised after my talk was, is this something that needs an explanation at all? And even before that, is this the sort of thing that we can actually say is improbable? My point about the improbabilities was just to say that this is sort of standard theory testing in physics. This is what we do. You, you have an idea about how the universe works and you need to calculate the probability of the data that we see and that's how you test your theory. So there can't be an in-principle problem with fine-tuning. Otherwise, there's an in-principle problem with physics and probabilities. It might be a harder practical problem, but it it can't be a problem in principle. And then are these the sorts of probabilities that demand a further explanation or are they just something unlikely happened? So the example was given about all of us in at some level are very unlikely that this particular person met that particular person at this time and you know your parents and grandparents all met each other so that doesn't seem like the sort of improbability that needs an explanation and you sort of say because well something had to happen and in particular there's no sort of better theory about why that happened i mean people meet some people have to meet you know things happen families start and, and hence more people <laughs> happen so the question I think comes back to is fine-tuning the sort of thing that could be explained. I think that's a, a good way to approach whether it needs an explanation. And something I think like the, a, a thing like the multiverse suggests that it is. If the multiverse was true and if it could avoid Boltzmann brain problems, then it would be a good explanation for this fact. So I, I take it the answer to that is that if there's a good explanation available, we should go for it. The problem with the grandparents meeting and all of that is there is no better explanation other than, yeah, people just meet. But fine-tuning might suggest that we should rethink our entire, you know, the cosmology, that or, or we should rethink what we think about the ultimate laws of nature or what might be beyond or, or underneath the ultimate laws of nature.
0: And if people want to look more into this to read up on it, what do you suggest they look for?
2: Well, I, Geraint Lewis at the University of Sydney and I have written a book called
0: A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finally Tuned
2: Cosmos, which is available for pre-order on Amazon now, coming out in a few months. So that is a very, re, sort of a, an update of the latest state of the field. It's, it discusses all the, the examples I talked about and, and a whole lot more, and then tries to work out what on earth all of this means. So I, I highly recommend that to you. There's a wide literature on this sort of thing from a a whole heap of people. So Martin Rees uh, wrote a famous book called Just Six Numbers. That was about 15 years ago, nearly 20 years ago now, but that's still a very good summary of all this sort of things. And then you have sort of philosophical responses by people like Richard Swinburne and Robin Collins on on the side of, of arguing that this points to a divine designer. So those are worth taking seriously, I think. And there's uh, defences of the multiverse and other sorts of principles maybe by Martin Rees, of course, and Paul Davis, Uh, his book, The Goldilocks Enigma, is also an excellent book.
0: And if someone in school would like to follow your career and ask these big questions and study cosmology, what's the path they should take?
2: So the path that I took is a fairly standard one. You start off doing an undergraduate degree in, I did mine in physics. In some places you can do it in astronomy uh, more specifically. And then your your apprenticeship in research is your PhD. So I was lucky enough to, to go to Cambridge to do that. Yeah, that's three or four years spent just, just researching. And that's your sort of ticket into the into the academic world there's lots of open questions in cosmology that all sorts of people would love to have a phd student bright young phd student helping them out with with their research with the open questions in cosmology and once you've got your phd then uh, you try and get funding somehow you can be employed by someone else or i actually got my own funding from somewhere to stay here at the university of sydney so
0: yeah that's that's how i ended up where i am well luke barnes thank you very much Thank you very much. That was astronomer Luke Barnes at the University of Sydney talking about the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Luke's book was funded by a grant from the Templeton World Charity Foundation. Listen next week for the response from Mark Colvin, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. And finally, Callisto is the second-largest moon of Jupiter. Here's the ephemera ensemble with music inspired by Callisto. was Keena Wilkins on flute and piano, Elson Price playing double bass and loop pedal, and Will Gilbert playing the trumpet. Go to ephemeraensemble.com for more. A big thank you to Nancy from Beloit, Wisconsin for her generous contribution, and to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, congratulations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com diffusionradio. Check in production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MBR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
1: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick